0: Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and thank you for loving Texas. Today we're going to continue with part two of the story of the Warren wagon train raid and the subsequent criminal trial of some Kiowa Indian chiefs. So let's go right back to the Texas frontier in 1871 and get wise about Texas. All right, we need to start with a brief recap of part one, but I encourage you, if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to it. It's called People, Places, and Policy. And in part one, I talked about the conditions on the Texas frontier west of Fort Worth in short, they were very dangerous. The Civil War had provided the Plains Indians tribes, and the ones we're concerned with are the mainly the Kiowa tribe, also the Comanches, and uh, they provided those tribes with a great opportunity to push the frontier of settlement in Texas back toward the east, which they did, and during Reconstruction, the United States government was again responsible for security on the frontier. And Ulysses Grant had instituted what we call the peace policy or the Quaker peace policy, where he had placed Indian agents, most of them Quakers, but all of them uh, religious people with various tribes. And they were supposed to model peacefulness, civilization, et cetera, et cetera. They were also in charge of administering a massive government welfare program where the U.S. government would provide rations and annuity goods farming tools, food, blankets, that kind of thing, to the Indian tribes. And in exchange, the Indians promised to stay on the reservations and not raid. Of course, as you might guess, that wasn't working very well. I introduce you to Laurie Tatum, who was the Quaker Indian agent for the Kiowa and Comanche. He was based at Fort Sill or near Fort Sill. And the problem Laurie Tatum was having was the Kiowas and the Comanches were very actively raiding into Texas. I introduced you to some of the Kiowa Chiefs, Satanta, Satank, and Big Tree who will be the subject of this episode and in the subsequent parts. We talked about uh, the Reconstruction Governor E.J. Davis, the governor of Texas. He was appointed by the federal authorities to be the governor and he was going to be facing an actual election at the end of Reconstruction coming up in a couple of years after in 1873 and we talked about the general of the army william tecumseh sherman sherman was getting repeated pleas for help from the people of texas but he didn't believe that the indian rating was as bad as everybody was claiming it was so as we ended part 1 general sherman was heading for texas to tour the frontier well just during the time that it took sherman to make it from washington dc to texas 14 people were killed by Indian raiders. Sherman landed in Galveston on April 24th, 1871. He got on a train. He went through Harrisburg, now part of Houston, and on to Columbus, Texas that evening. He went on to San Antonio to begin his tour of the frontier forts in Texas. So basically, he went west to San Antonio. Then he was going to go north and work his way northeast through the, the line of front forts on the frontier. And toward eventually uh, the North Texas area and the problem area. Um, as I mentioned, Sherman was doubtful about how severe the situation was in Texas. However, in January of 1871, uh, there was an attack on four African American men, one of whom, Britt Johnson, had been the hero of a raid in 1864 called the Elm Creek Raid. Now, we're going to get that, uh, its own Wise About Texas episode, sometime in the future. The Indians killed and scalped all four of the black men in the January 1871 raid. But the Indians didn't consider the scalps of black men worth anything, so they didn't hang on to them. On April 19th, an unidentified man was wounded by Indian raiders and then scalped alive. The very next day, April the 20th, several citizens were attacked, actually within sight of Fort Richardson, which was in Jacksboro and was one of Sherman's destinations. The next day, April 21st, San Jacinto Day, there was another attack, and and horses were stolen only three miles from Fort Richardson. So uh, that contributed to the total of 14 people that were killed, basically in the area between Forts Richardson and Griffin, or present-day Jacksboro and Albany. So Sherman's on his way to this area. He's traveling with some of his staff. He's also traveling with General Randolph Marcy, who at the time was Inspector General of the Army. Now Marcy, his name may be familiar, he had spent time in Texas during the Mexican War. He had uh, selected some of the sites for the forts that the government had built in Texas. He also established a trading route known as the Marcy Trail all the way to Santa Fe, New Mexico. In March 1852, Marcy was assigned the command of a 70-man exploring expedition across the Great Plains And they were searching for the source of the Red River. They were directed to, quote, collect and report everything that may be useful or interesting, close quote. I talked a little bit about that expedition in episode 29 when we're talking about Greer County. So you can go back and check that out. So Marcy had some experience in Texas. Second in command, by the way, of that uh, Marcy expedition was Captain George McClellan, who later became Marcy's son-in-law and also... Uh, his commander in the Civil War. Um, One of Marcy's scouts was Jim Ned, who was a Delaware Indian. Uh, Marcy thought him the bravest warrior, uh, as well as one of the most successful horse thieves he'd ever known, which was sort of funny. But uh, between May 2nd and and July 28th of that expedition, that Marcy expedition in 1852, Marcy had crossed a 1,000 miles of territory in Texas and Oklahoma that had previously not been explored. So he discovered a lot of mineral deposits and uh, twenty-five new species of mammals, um, some new species of reptiles. He recorded a prairie dog town that reportedly covered four hundred thousand acres, um, and then he finally discovered the sources of both forks of the Red River. So he thought. Also discovered the Paladuro and, and Tulay canyons, and uh, and he was the first white man to ever explore those canyons. Um, the expedition also encountered and documented the Wichita Indians, which we weren't all that familiar with, uh, compiled a dictionary of their language, and also got some information on Cynthia Ann Parker. So that was a very important expedition. So go back to episode 29, check that out. Um, point is, Marcy was a very experienced frontiersman. And so while Sherman doubted that the Indian problems were that bad, Marcy knew different. In fact, he kept a journal of his trip with Sherman and he wrote. This, he said, quote, the whole country seems in a fair way of becoming totally depopulated, close quote. So uh, actually, some of the citizens of North Texas during this time expressed a hope when they knew that Sherman was coming. They sort of hoped that an attack would occur while Sherman was in the area so he'd know firsthand exactly the problems they were dealing with. Well, what those citizens had no way to know is how very close Sherman would come to fulfilling those wishes. In the meantime, another raid was being planned by the Indians. A group of Kiowa, Kiowa, Apache, and Comanches were camped on the North Fork of the Red River. In camp was a somewhat mysterious figure in the Kiowa society named Mamonte, which translates to touching the sky or Skywalker. Now, not much has been written about Mamonte, but he was the instigator of a lot of these raids. He was a warrior. He was a medicine man. Mamonte was his actual name, but he was also known to the Kiowa as Dohate, which means the owl prophet. So he got his visions from the owls and was said to communicate with the owls. So Mamonte led a party of over 100 Indians down from Indian territory. They entered... Young County, Texas, between Fort Belknap and Fort Richardson. Now, this was about May 17, 1871. So they started a lot earlier, of course, from Oklahoma, but that's when they entered Young County. What they intended to do was watch the Butterfield Trail. Trail. Now, I talked about this in the part one. The Butterfield Trail was an old stagecoach road that ran across um, in this area, and they. Mamonte had had a vision, and he told the warriors that there would be two parties of white people passing on the trail that they were watching. It was going to happen the next day. The first party was going to be a small party, and it wasn't going to be worthy of their attention, so they weren't going to attack that party. The second party, however, would be a large party, and that they were going to attack that party, and the attack would be a success. That was Mamonte's vision. Well, early the next morning, the Indians assembled on top of a small hill, which gave them a view of the large portion of the Butterfield Trail below him. Today, it's called Knob Hill. And from the top of Knob Hill, you can look east across what's referred to as the Salt Creek Prairie to basically the next hill, which is called Cox Mountain. It's a great view of anyone passing along the trail, and it was a favorite raiding spot for the Indians, and if they caught you out in the middle of that prairie, then the, you wouldn't be able to get away. So it was there that the Indians waited. And I'll have some pictures uh, on social media of, of, taken from the top of that Knob Hill where the Indians were. Okay, Sherman, Marcy, and a small escort of troops, very small, because remember Sherman didn't think a large guard was necessary. They entered that same Salt Creek Prairie about noon on May the 18th. Now, there's some confusion in the literature uh, in the primary sources about when they actually came across the prairie. Marcy, uh, in his journal, wrote that they camped eight miles from Fort Richardson on May 17th. So that would have put them past the point where the attack actually occurred and where those Indians were waiting. But the Indian recollections, and I'll tell you a little bit about those sources at the end of this episode. The Indian recollections were that the small party passed just a few hours before the Warren wagon train. Um, the attack occurred on May 18th, and uh, Sherman documented, Marcy and Sherman agree on that. Sherman wrote a letter about the attack um, referring to the May 18th date. So it really does, the point is not exactly. Uh, what day everybody was going across the prairie. The point is that Sherman and his party passed those Indian Raiders, and the Indian Raiders watched them go by. So Mamonte's vision of a small party came to pass, and Mamonte held the Warriors back, and they didn't attack. But if they had, they would have attacked William T. Sherman himself. So hours later, the Indians watched a wagon train approached from the east. The wagon train, there were 12 wagons. They were owned by a man named Henry Warren, and they were delivering corn. And as the train, as the wagon train approached the middle of the prairie, the Indians swept down off the Knob Hill, and they were led by Yellow Wolf and Big Tree. The teamsters desperately tried to circle their wagons when they saw and heard the Indians coming, but they didn't get it done in time. It was a melee. Everyone was shooting every direction. Hand-to-hand combat started almost immediately. One Comanche was killed early. Three or four of the Teamsters died in that first rush. A few Teamsters broke out and started running east toward Cox Mountain as fast as they could go. Two were cut down before they could reach the brush, but five of the Teamsters made it and disappeared into the brush at the bottom of Cox Mountain. The firing had stopped from inside the group of wagons. The Kiowa thought the men were all killed. One Kiowa ran up to a wagon to claim it as his, but there was a wounded teamster still alive in the back. He shot the Kiowa in the face. At this point, Yellow Wolf, who recalled this tale years later and was describing the raid, he cut off his account. He didn't describe it much further. He told the person to whom he was speaking, that the Indians, quote, tore everything up, close quote. And that's all he would say. And then the Indians retreated back to the Knob Hill they started from. At the southern base of that hill, they buried the dead Comanche. By this time, Sherman had made it to Fort Richardson. While he was there, some citizens from Jacksboro came to see him and plead for protection, which Sherman still questioned the need of that. But not for long did he question that. About midnight that same night, a severely wounded man named Thomas Brazile straggled into Fort Richardson. He had been one of the five teamsters that made it all the way to Cox Mountain. He'd walked almost 20 miles to Fort Richardson and notified him of what had happened. Sherman immediately ordered Colonel Ranald McKenzie to go to the site of the attack and figure out what happened as best as he could. A man named J.B. Terrell visited the site a day or two after the attack and described it as a total mess of broken open grain sacks, broken wagons, pieces of horse tack, pieces of cloth everywhere, which is basically uh, what Yellow Wolf said they did, tore everything up. The Fort Richardson army surgeon, a guy named Dr. J.H. Patsky, made a report On the Teamsters, he was riding with McKenzie, and he described uh, the dead Teamsters that they found. He said that five bodies were riddled with bullets, covered with gashes, and their skulls crushed. Some of the bodies had arrow wounds. One body in particular was chained to a wagon pole face down over a fire, his tongue cut out. They guess this is the one who probably shot that Kiowa in the face trying to claim the wagon. They were all scalped except one. And if you study the customs of the Kiowas and the Comanches, you know as well as I do that that particular teamster was uh, had his tongue cut out and was burned alive. McKenzie buried the five teamsters along with the two that had been trying to run to Cox Mountain and been, had been killed, buried them along the road at the site of the massacre. Now, the gravesite is still there. It's on a private ranch. I was very fortunate to be able to visit that site. Um, in the last few weeks, which I'll post pictures of also. By the way, uh, the Kiowa warrior who got shot in the raid ended up getting screwworms and died on the way back to the reservation. Sherman had already taken off for Fort Sill and the Indian Agency as McKenzie was doing his inspection. Sherman had given McKenzie one additional order. He said to track and pursue the Indians, if at all possible, even if necessary, all the way back. To the reservation and catch him because they were suspicious that these raiding Indians were coming from the reservation, which of course would have broken the deal that they had with the peace policy. So McKenzie was off in search of the raiders. Laurie Tatum, the Quaker Indian agent, had, in an extraordinary coincidence, he had just sent a letter to his supervisor, another Quaker agent named Enoch Hoag. That, he, that Tatum was having trouble controlling the Kiowa and Comanches and suggested to Hogue that they take an entirely new approach. Tatum thought it would be worthwhile to turn the Indian raiders over to civilian authorities and have them tried in the criminal courts as citizens would have been tried in the criminal courts. And I alluded to this earlier in Part 1 that the thinking was that if the Indians saw Uh, the power of the rule of law, the power and order and process of the courts, that it might make an impression on them and change their behavior. That's what the Indian agents thought. When he sent that letter, which went out on May 19th, he had not heard of the massacre that had happened on May 18th. Well, Sherman arrived and met with Tatum, and Tatum told him that he thought Satanta was gone off the reservation but they'd be in for rations soon, and Tatum would ask him if he knew anything about this raid down in Texas. So Sherman stuck around. Um, he was also waiting for word from McKenzie to see if he had found the Indians responsible. Well, the following Saturday, May 27, 1871, the Kiowas came in for their rations. A little bit of a, a little more than a week after the raid. Tatum greeted everybody, and he took some of the chiefs, and he said, let's go into the council room. And I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I would imagine it would be a, a conference room of some sort. Took him into the council room. He told the chiefs about the wagon train raid and asked if anybody knew anything about it. Well, what Tatum would have expected uh, was very little information or none at all. Instead, and surprisingly, Satanta, who was there, stood up and spoke let me read you a little bit from Satanta's speech that he made to Tatum. I'm going to read the whole thing, but remember Satanta, as I described him in part one, he liked to brag. He was the, one of the principal war chiefs, if not the most important, of the Kiowa tribe, and he was really proud of his status. So uh, he stood up when Tatum asked about the raid, and he poked himself in the chest. Very impressively, It said. And he said the following, quote, "'Yes, I led that raid. "'I've heard that you have stolen a large portion "'of our annuity goods and given them to the Texans. "'I have repeatedly asked you for arms and ammunition, "'which you have not furnished, "'and made many other requests which have not been granted. "'You do not listen to my talk. "'The white people are preparing to build a railroad "'through our country, which will not be permitted.'" Some years ago, we were taken by the hair and pulled close to the Texans, where we have to fight, but we have cut that loose now and are all going with the Cheyennes to the Antelope Hills. When General Custer was here two or three years ago, he arrested me and kept me in confinement several days, but arresting Indians is played out now and is never to be repeated. On account of these grievances, I took a short time ago about a hundred of my warriors with the chiefs Satank, Eagleheart, Big Tree, Big Bow, and Fast Bear. Now at this point, Satanka interrupted him and told Satanta not to say anything else and not to say anything else about who was there. But Satanta couldn't resist. Here's he went on to say this: quote, "We went to Texas, where we captured a train not far from Fort Richardson, killed seven of the men, and drove off about forty-one mules." three of my men were killed, but we're willing to call it even. We don't expect to do any raiding around here this summer, but we expect to raid in Texas. If any other Indian comes and claims the honor of leading the party, he will be lying to you, for I did it myself, close quote. Well, Tatum was shocked. He didn't expect anybody to admit the raid. The Indians knew full well that that was a problem, but Satanta just couldn't resist and he got up and he actually bragged about it. Now, you notice what he left out. Mamonte sort of uh, led the raid. He's the one that organized it. He's the one that had the vision and told him what to do, but Satanta jumped up at the first opportunity to claim that he had actually led it. Um, So Tatum immediately wrote a note to Benjamin Grierson. He was the post commander at Fort Sill, and he asked if... We, if they could arrest the chiefs that had gone on this raid, they'd now admitted it, and send them to Texas for trial in accordance with the suggestion he had just made a week prior to Enoch Hogue. Well, Sherman, of course, was there too, and so this was discussed with Sherman, and Sherman ordered that the Indians come in for a council to meet at Fort Sill. So they set this up at uh, Colonel Grisson's headquarters, on his porch, actually, and uh, Sherman met Satanta on Grierson's front porch. He had stationed troops, however, in strategic locations uh, around that area where the quarters is located. He also had troops inside Grierson's house. Well, Satanta on the porch admitted the raid uh, but denied anybody was tied to any wagon pole and burned. Of course, we already knew that was a lie. Another chief present, Kicking Bird, who actually was overall, uh, from a broader historical perspective, one of the more moderate chiefs in the Kiowa tribe, he tried to convince Satana to just shut up. But uh, Sachana, Satana is reported to have pounded his chest saying, quote, I'm the man, close quote. Uh, so he kept bragging about the raid. Now, remember, in the Kiowa culture, the raiding would have brought Satanta status, so to have led that raid uh, would have brought him status. And recall further, back in the speech that I read part of earlier, he made a, he differentiated between raiding in Oklahoma, an Indian territory where the soldiers were, and raiding down in Texas. So there was a little bit of a disconnect in Satanta's mind between uh, what he, he could do where the reservations were and what he could do down in Texas. He didn't fully grasp that Texas and the area where he was standing were, for these purposes, basically the same place. So Sherman informed Satanta that he, Satanta, and Satank and Big Tree would be arrested. Now, Satanta fig- started to figure out that nothing good was happening because then he changed his claims. He said, yeah, he had been at the raid, but he didn't fight, he didn't kill anyone. Uh, he just wanted to teach some of the young warriors how to fight. Um, Sherman said, "Well, that didn't get enough. You're going to Texas, and you're going to be uh, you're going to go to court." And so, at some point, apparently, Satanta figured out it wasn't going his way. Got very mad. Actually, threw back his robe and reached for a pistol that he was carrying. At which point, the shutters of Grierson's house flew open, and gun barrels emerged from the soldiers that were in the house. Um, so Satanta didn't. Uh, do anything further uh, in the meantime while this was all going on uh, big tree came straggling up to the area guarded by a group of soldiers it turns out he had tried to escape because he had realized some, uh, that this was not going to work out well so he had tried to run away uh, but the soldiers eventually caught him Satank so was arrested as well and the indians were put in the guardhouse at fort sill and scheduled to be transported to Jacksboro on June the 8th, 1871. So the morning comes where they're going to, to take him to Jacksboro. Satank is put in the front wagon. Satanta and Big Tree are put together in the second wagon. Satank had two soldiers with him in the front wagon. Now before they leave, Satank had gotten in the wagon, pulled up, pulled a a covering over his head, and started chanting something. Well, the interpreter, one of the interpreters at the post was a guy named Horace Jones, and he heard Satank singing. So he walked up to the guys driving the wagon, the two guards, and he said, listen, you need to watch that old Indian back there because he's going to give you some trouble. The guards, you know, obviously asked him, what do you mean? And Horace Jones said, Satank is chanting his death song." So off they go. Well, sure enough, the tank had a plan. He had stashed a knife in his clothing that apparently no one had searched or no one had found. And as he continued singing as they went down the road, he managed to get out of his handcuffs. And the way he did it, and we don't know for sure how he did it, but he got out of his handcuffs, taking the skin off his wrists and off his hands. That's how badly he wanted out of those cuffs. Now, Satank, at this point, was about 70 years old, but remember from episode one, or part one, he was one of the ten most fierce warriors of the Kai, Was a member of the warrior society known as the Koitsinko. So he slips the handcuffs off along with the skin on his hands, grabs the knife, lunges at one of the guards, stabbing him in the leg, Both guards bail out of the wagon immediately. Satank grabs a rifle, turns to the soldiers in the second wagon, and is trying to chamber a round. Well, the rifle already had a round in it, so it was starting to jam up. One of the guards in the second wagon snapped off a shot, hitting Satank, knocking him down, but he managed to get back up and was still trying to get the gun loaded, at which point bullets went his way, and Satank got the warrior's death that he, as a member of the Senko would have wanted. We found out later that uh, Satank had told one of the Tonkaway scouts going along with this uh, trip to Jacksboro that he planned to die on the trip, and that when he did, the Tonkaway could have his scalp, and Satank reportedly told him, the hair is poor, but you may have it. Well, sure enough, uh, they laid Satank out by the side of the road for burial, and one of, the Tonkaway scout, one of the Tonkaway scouts rode up and scalped the old warrior before he was buried. Satank, by the way, his body later was moved to Fort Sill to a cemetery known as Chief's Hill, and he was the first of several Indian chiefs laid to rest at Fort Sill. Well, Satank and Big Tree arrive at Jacksboro, and they're put into the guardhouse at Fort Richardson, to await the trial, which we will cover in part three. So the peace policy and its government welfare program had failed. Now we'd see if the rule of law could overcome the warrior culture of the Kiowa. Sherman wasn't thrilled with the trial situation, but he let it go forward. The citizens of Jacksboro prepared for the trial of the century, while an apprehensive government flailed around for solutions. This would be a real test for the American legal system. And in part three, we'll go to Jacksboro, to the old sandstone courthouse, and we'll go to trial. Well, now we come to the part of the episode I call Getting There, where I will tell you how to see a couple of the places I mentioned in the episode. The first thing I want to tell you, though, is about a source uh, that I used Uh, in making this podcast and and writing an article on this matter that's soon to be published, and it's a very interesting source. It's a book called Carbine and Lance. It was written by an author named W.S. Nye, Wilbur Nye. He had been in the Army, and he actually interviewed Yellow Wolf, one of the first raiders down the Knob Hill toward the Warren wagon train. He interviewed Yellow Wolf, so the description of the raid from the Indian perspective Reportedly, comes directly from one of the leaders of that raid. He also invented, interviewed, excuse me, Hunting Horse. Hunting Horse was not on the raid, but he was alive at the time, and he knew and spoke to the Indians that had participated. He also interviewed the wife of one of the raiders, a Kiowa woman named Ayata or Ayate, whose husband had, uh, like I said, participated in the raid. And finally, he also talked to a man named George Hunt. George Hunt was a Kiowa historian and scholar who had spoken to Big Tree himself uh, and others about the raid. So uh, from an Indian perspective, that's about as good a source as you're gonna find on this matter. And it's a very interesting book, Carbine and Lance. And it's it's about uh, Fort Sill and the activities around Fort Sill. And there's a lot more than just, uh, just the Warren wagon train raid. So very interesting. Um, let me tell you how to get to Fort Sill. Fort Sill is located near Lawton, Oklahoma. It's an active Army fort. They also, It's also a National Historic Site. They have a museum. Now, the COVID rules are a little bit in flux, so you're going to need to check before you go. Just Google Fort Sill Museum. It'll come up. Uh, so do some checking. My hope is to visit the area before the end of the year. This podcast being released in 2021, and that's the one site involved in this matter that I haven't seen. Uh, the Jacksboro courthouse is a wonderful old courthouse. Now, the original sandstone courthouse is long gone, but it is the county seat of Jack County, so they have a, uh, another courthouse, obviously, and uh, it's about 60 miles northwest of Fort Worth. Now, if you go up there, um, go see go to the district clerk's office, ask for district clerk Tracy Pippin, tell her Judge Wise sent you, and ask to see the file about the Indian raid. The original court minutes survive. They or some of them do. They have been uh, preserved by the Texas Supreme Court Task Force on Court Record Preservation, of which I am a part, and uh, they're preserved and should last uh, a couple of centuries. Uh, so you can, if uh, District Clerk Pippin is willing, you can look at uh, some of the original documents from the uh, trial that I'm going to talk about in part three. There's a historical marker for the Warren wagon train raid. Go to, the way to find it is go to Graham, Texas, which is west of Jacksboro. Go to Graham, Texas and go on Highway 16 North, about eight miles out of town, and on your right will be a historical mar- marker of the raid. If you stand at that marker, and you can kind of do this on um, Google Maps Street View, but if you stand at that marker, and look to the east, you'll see, uh, if it's a clear day, you might be able to see the windmills on top of Cox Mountain. So you'll be looking across the prairie. It's about a half a mile away where the raid took place. So that historical marker is eight miles north of Graham on Highway 16. While you're in Graham, uh, go to one of my favorite Texas bookstores, Pratt's Books. Tell them uh, tell them that Kenwise sent you and uh, Mentioned wise about Texas. I can't promise you it's gonna get anything, but uh, the inventory is wonderful and the Pratt's are two of the nicest people you'll ever meet. So you can get a little Texas history while you're doing checking out the historical marker. Also, I want to dedicate this episode to Miss Shannon Potts and her son Travis Plowman of Young County, who made it possible for me to visit the site of the raid and stand on the very spot where Satanta, Satank, and Big Tree started the raid as well as the spot where the men of the Warren wagon train met their fate. Shannon Potts is working with others on the Young County Museum of History and Culture, which we hope to be open soon. You can find the Young County Museum of History and Culture on Facebook. Search for that name and give it a like. Lots of great history up in that area, and you won't find a nicer group of people than the folks in that area in North Texas. Stay tuned. Part three, the trial, will be coming soon. And I want to close this episode in a non-traditional way. I want to read the names of the men who were killed on the Warren wagon train raid, so that they might be remembered. Wagonmaster Nathan Long, John Mullins, James Elliot, Samuel Elliot, M. J. Baxter, Jesse Bowman and James Williams. God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.